We finished our two-year study in the book of Romans this last May, and as we were thinking and praying about what to enter into next in our sermon series, there was a phrase that stuck out at the end of that letter to the, to the Romans. Paul said, quote, the mystery of the gospel was kept secret, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of God. So through the summer, we've set out to pursue that principle into the Old Testament to see how the gospel seeds were planted there. And so, so far we've looked at the book of Psalms. We spent eight weeks in Psalm 119 in particular, seeing how Christ is foreshadowed, prophesied, anticipated in Psalm 119. And now we're gonna turn our attention to a different portion of the Old Testament. This is a minor prophet to see how the gospel was made known to the nations through the prophetic writings. Pastor Josh covered quite a few of the minor prophets while he was here in his decade plus, but this is one that we had not yet gotten to. And I think it's probably best just right from the start to just call attention to the fact that it's awkward to have being, to be preaching through a sermon series from a prophet who shares my name. Right off the bat, I just want to deal with a potential awkwardness. Malachi is not a very common name. And so it sort of stands out. In fact, if you've ever been to a Chick-fil-A or a coffee shop with me, you know that actually more often than not, I'm called Malachi. Uh, The the old joke is that Malachi is the Italian prophet of the Old Testament. And because it's such an uncommon, uncommon name, it sort of stands out a little bit. And so I recognize that there is some potential awkwardness of preaching through a sermon series on the words of an inspired prophet who shares my name. And one of the youth, Isaac Viedmark by name, repurposed a popular meme to illustrate this potential awkwardness. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> so just, just to be real clear, uh, my words are not inspired. The prophet Malachi's are. So I'm just going to re- try to refer to the prophet as the prophet throughout, just to avoid confusion. But at at any point, I say, Malachi says, please know that I'm not trying to speak to you in the third person. (laughs) That's not something Malachi would do. (laughs) His is the last book of the Old Testament, the last of those 12 minor prophets. And this letter really marks the end of a, a long period of special revelation of God revealing himself through prophets It would be 400 years after this point, up until John the Baptist, until they would get another word from the Lord. It's a collection of prophecies, of dialogues, and it weaves together a reminder of God's powerful love, his warning of a coming judgment for disobedience, and a call for repentance in spiritual integrity for his people. And so at this point in history, God's people now have been exiled from their land. They've been kicked out. Babylon came in and took them over. They were in Babylon for about 70 years. But at the time that the prophet is writing, they had already returned back to their land. So they've been kicked out and they've come back. And in fact, they've been back in the land almost for 100 years. And over that time, they've begun to live as cynical people, people who thought that some of God's promises, maybe they're just never going to come true. And so they've become hypocritical skeptical, disobedient. And so God comes in as a father would, and he challenges, and he corrects, and he confronts, 
his people. And then he promises to reward those who would patiently and faithfully be prepared to receive his Messiah when he does come. And so if you'd like to memorize a verse from this book, you might consider memorizing Malachi 4 to you. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Uh, Christians have long considered this verse to be fulfilled by the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, uh, who had come into the world as the light of God to usher in righteousness and healing. Well, let me just explain something right off the bat real quick that I think will help us understand the flow of this book of Malachi. I think this will help us keep track. The structure of this book is built around questions and answers. It's essentially six dialogues or disputes between God and his people through this prophet. And and each of these little interactions has three elements to them. The prophet speaks. He gives a statement from God, usually about the character or behavior or attitudes of the people. And then he provides a response in the form of an objection from Israel, who said, okay, I heard your statement, but I object to what you said, God. And then there's a response to their objection. So it's a statement, an objection, and then a response. And we're going to see that structure very clearly here in this first passage, these first five verses of this book. You'll see this on the screen. So we're going to take the first verse just briefly to give an introductory remark to the book of Malachi. And then we'll see the statement. The statement is clear. God loves his people. And then we'll see Israel's objection. How have you loved us? And then God's response, which might be summed up like this. He graciously preserves his people and justly destroys his enemies. So as we follow through this first dialogue, I submit that the big idea for this passage is this. God's covenantal love is demonstrated in his preserving grace and perfect justice. God's covenantal love is demonstrated in his preserving grace and perfect justice. And here's why this matters for us. Like Israel, we might be tempted to think that God has forgotten his people, that God has forgotten some of his promises. And in our impatience, we might lose hope. And if we lose hope, we become bitter. And if we become bitter towards God, our worship, our obedience, and all of our relationships will suffer. We need this reminder that God powerfully loves his people in order to give us the humility and the confidence, the security that we need to live rightly as his people as we anticipate his return. So as we start, let's pray together, ask God for his help. Father, we are humbly dependent upon you. Uh, We pray that you would use this word challenging and convicting as it is to encourage us that you do not forget your people. Help us to remember what we deserve in your justice and help us to appreciate what you give us, which is what we do not deserve, in your grace and mercy. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from 
your word. We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Introductory remarks in verse 1. Verse 1 says this again, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. An oracle is an utterance. It's a pronouncement. And so this, this passage was given under divine inspiration. It is a pronouncement from the word of God to God's people from this prophet by the hand of Malachi, literally. And it's worth taking a moment here just to notice something about Scripture. Scriptures are the, pro- the product of divine and human effort, forces working together. God takes the initiative. He called out this prophet. And then the prophet responds by working under the divine direction of God to communicate God's word in the way that God wants it for God's people to hear it. He didn't decide that he was going to become a prophet. He didn't take the initiative himself. He was not trying to come up with some words that he could put into God's mouth so he could have a platform to speak. He spoke from God as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's why we say that his words, as the rest of Scripture is, are divinely inspired. It is as if God himself is speaking. These are God-breathed words. Malachi, this prophet, uh, is, is called Malachi because in Hebrew that translates into English as my messenger. Uh, and actually some people have thought Malachi wasn't actually his, his proper name, it was just a title. Maybe it's the office that he's filling. It's the description of what he's doing. He's acting as a messenger of God. But it probably was his proper name. Having said that, we don't know much about him. We don't have any details of his life or his ministry elsewhere except for what we have here in this book. And what we have here in this book is a man who's acting as a spiritual commentator. Uh, He is bringing and explaining God's word to God's people. And as I mentioned, at this point in redemptive history, Israel has been freed from their captivity in Babylon. They were taken for 70 years, but now they've been restored back to their land. And the temple has been rebuilt And so God's people now are back in their place, and they're able to worship God again, and yet there's a widespread lack of gratitude, a widespread lack of commitment to God. One thing that's kind of interesting in this minor prophet book is that they're not turning to idols anymore. You know that idolatry is one of the main themes of prophetic books in the Old Testament, but idolatry is not explicitly mentioned anywhere in the book of Malachi. But what is mentioned are sins of indifference, apathy, and negligence. Yes, they are back in the land and the temple's rebuilt, but eh, the temple's really not as great as it used to be. That first temple was way better. And it still appeared in their perspective that many of those promises that God made to them were failing. They're still surrounded by enemy nations The Messiah hasn't yet come. There are no lions laying with lambs yet. And so Israel's going through the motions of worshiping God. A little disconnected, not really engaged. Really, they're just trying to see how little they can get away with as they're going through the motions of worshiping God. There's no meaningful sacrifice, just impatience and skepticism and a doubt that God truly loves them. 
And so it's into that apathetic and sorry circumstance that God's Word cuts through like a knife by the word of the prophet. Notice the first thing the Lord says. Second, the statement, God loves His people. We see that in that first bit of verse 2. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved communicates that it's a past tense love that is continuing now, even presently. And this comes right back to the concept of the relationship between God and Israel. It's coming back to that concept of a covenant, the covenant relationship between God and his people. And so that word is an important word. Here's a paraphrase of what Stephen Wellam defines a covenant as. It says, a covenant is an agreement which defines a relationship between two parties marked by faithfulness and love. The covenant relationship that God has with his people is one of free love that he initiates and gives to and devotes to this people. He intentionally entered into a special, unique relationship with Israel. Uh, It says over and over again in the Old Testament, uh, I promise that I will be their God and they they will be my people. Almost like marriage vows between God and this particular people. This is not a contractual obligation that God is trying to fulfill here. He is preserving Israel because he has set his unique covenantal steadfast love upon them. He freely chose them. And he had intentionally set his unique love upon them. And yet, Israel, the objects of that love, couldn't be bothered to respond with the same sort of wholehearted devotion in response. In fact, they were very unfaithful to their covenant with God over and over again throughout their history. They turned to other false gods of the nations that surrounded them. And as a result, they began to doubt whether God could or even would continue to love them based on what they did. And so they started to distance themselves from God a little bit. Every other problem, friends, that God confronts throughout this letter of Malachi can be traced back to a lack of trust that God loves his people. This is why the very first words out of the Lord's mouth, I have loved you, says the Lord. And so he's piercing into their apathy. He's piercing into their bitterness through the words of the prophet to remind Israel that he has remained faithful. You guys didn't, but I'm loyal to my covenant promises to you. From the beginning, God uniquely called Israel. Those who fear his name is how they're described in the book of Deuteronomy as well. And he calls them his treasured possession out of all the nations of the earth. They're alone the nation that he has known relationally in a unique way. He's entered into this covenant relationship with them, and he's been faithful all the way through. Uh, He's freed them from bondage in Egypt. He has freed them from their exile in Babylon. And even at the moment when Malachi was writing, he was continuing to preserve them even then. It is a consistent theme, a theme all through the minor prophets from Hosea, the first of the 12 minor prophets, to Malachi, the last, that nothing that Israel has done, and they did a lot, nothing that Israel has done has caused God to go back on his word. God has loved them, and yet here is their objection to that statement Third, 
the objection. God's people doubt his love. It says, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, we, we might read that and think, well, maybe they're, we'll, we'll take them at good faith. And as a general principle, that's the best way to read the written word. Like, I'm just going to assume that you meant well by what you wrote. Maybe they just needed a quick rundown of the ways that God has loved them in the past, maybe just to refresh their memory. But as we continue to read through this book, through the rest of Malachi, it is going to become increasingly clear that this question here is that it's not a genuine question. It's an accusation. This is an accusation more than a genuine question. It's more of a, what are you talking about? You've loved us. How have you loved us? Their lack of connection with God's love for them was the source of all of the spiritual apathy and indifference that they were experiencing. Uh, Israel had looked around at their circumstances and in the moment they were observing what they were seeing and they were noticing a gap. There's a gap between what was promised and what they were actually experiencing. And so maybe they wanted all of God's promises of the new heavens and the new earth to be true here and now in this particular moment. So if we've been restored to our land, why aren't the rest of God's promises coming true at the same time? Has he forgotten? Is he unable? Why are we still mourning from the effects of sin? Why are Israelites struggling financially? Why is death still reigning? Why is there no descendant of David sitting on the throne? Why are they still under pressure and persecution from the surrounding nations? Why is there so much unbelief within this covenant people of God? And I get that. Are you ever troubled by the gap between God has, what God has already done and what he has promised to do in the future? If I've been saved, why am I still struggling against sin? If Jesus really came to set everything right, why do we still deal with the burden of disease? Why is there still evil in the world? Why do I still experience anxiety? Why does this church not look as confident and holy as it ought? All those questions, friends, come from a misunderstanding of the nature of the way that God's redemptive mercies play out in real time in history. Yes, God has already done so much, but there is much that he has not yet done that he still yet intends to do when Christ returns. But we get impatient. We don't want to wait. Or maybe we're just ignorant. Maybe we just don't understand how this plays out. And so it's into that gap, that gap between our experiences and our expectations that in our contemporary experience, prosperity preachers speak. And they will say things like, you're right, you should have all of those promises now. And if you don't, maybe there's something wrong with you. Maybe you just don't have the right amount of faith. Uh, these men and women call themselves prophets and put their own words into God's mouth. They take their own initiative to speak on God's behalf. But friends, those words are not from God. And their message is usually self-serving. It's pretty clear. Follow my instructions and you'll begin to experience heaven on earth. All that health and all that wealth that God promised could be yours today. But friends, if that's our expectation, we've, we've misunderstood and we've actually mis, uh, underestimated 
what God truly promises in a new heavens and a new earth that cannot be fulfilled in a fallen world? If those are the questions that we're entertaining, it's a signal that we've been measuring God's love for us by the wrong standard. That Israel was living in the moment. They had forgotten about what God had already done for them. And so this question comes up, which is really unbelievable. How have you loved us? They're saying this to God. Well, how about forgiving your sin and rebellion as a starter? How about rescuing you from your enemies? How about providing for your needs and answering your prayers? How about providing you with a temple and priests and a sacrificial system to make atonement? How about the very fact that he's still continuing to provide prophets to come to teach and to encourage them? Well, yeah, but what have you done for us lately? That short memory, that ingratitude, made them despondent, just disconnected. They're gloomy, they're discouraged, they're hopeless. Have you been there? Well, here's a reminder to remember God's tender mercies. It might appear to you this morning, based on your past experience through the last seven days, that God has forgotten you. He's forgotten his promises. Friends, don't let that bitterness settle into your heart. If you begin to lose hope, you'll begin to live like you don't believe that God is ever going to do anything. He'll never judge, he'll never bless, he'll never act in any way. And you may well end up slipping into the sort of sins that we see in Israel engaging in in the remainder of this book. Hollow worship, selfishness, and indifference towards others. Friends, it is really not an overstatement to say that our spiritual health and growth depends upon a growing appreciation for God's powerful, steadfast love. That's why we began with Psalm 136 this morning. You can imagine Israel gathered together, the priest leading this psalm, and they are forced to repeat that phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And you repeat it, and you're like, okay, 26 verses, I got it. But do you? Israel thought they got it. They didn't get it. They're asking, how have you loved us? Bro. <laughs> so that's why we started with Psalm 136, because we too, like Israel, need that reminder to remember that God's powerful love is at work in and amongst us. Don't forget. So how is it that this week you can actively set about to remember the steadfast love of God? If you're a Christian, let me just encourage you to consider what you've been saved from. Think about what God has done for you in bringing you to spiritual life, even as we've listened to Rob's testimony this morning. Thinking about how the Lord is patient with Rob. Friends, this is all of our testimony. The Lord is incredibly patient and gracious towards us. But we often forget. Think about what God has done for you in bringing you to spiritual life. Think about what God has done adopting you into his family, atoning for your sin, giving you his Holy Spirit to lead you into all truth and to grow you into more and more of his likeness. He's given you a community of others 
who have those same affections, who gather together regularly to encourage one another to remain steadfast and dedicated to the love of God. Just consider how God is preserving his church. That we might look at all the madness of our particular moment, just like Israel, and we think, well, maybe God's lost the script. Maybe God's done with us. Maybe God doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe he's not powerful. Maybe he's forgotten. But God stated that he loved Israel. His covenant love was upon them. He remained faithful and loyal to them despite their disobedience and even their spiritual adultery as they turned to worship other gods. And then Israel turns around and wonders out loud if that's actually true. Buckle up, then comes the response from God. Fourth, the response. God graciously preserves his people and destroys his enemies. You'll see it from the end of verse 2 to the end, and I'll read that back into our hearing. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So Israel has asked God, how have you loved us? And God responds in a way that I think is surprising. He responds by explaining that he freely chose them as his object of unique affection. And he has laid waste to those who are not the objects of his grace. In other words, when God is asked how he demonstrates his love, he explains the doctrine of election. And he quickly gives a history lesson to illustrate what he means by that. So a long time ago, if we're going back in the Old Testament narrative, there was a man named Abraham whom God chose uniquely out of the nations. He made promises to Abraham. He promised to bless him, to make him a blessing to the nations, promised to provide Abraham land, to make him fruitful, to provide him many children or offspring. And that promise of blessing that was given to God, to Abraham, would continue to follow through that family lineage, through his offspring, through one of his sons, who's named Isaac. Well, that son, Isaac, has his own twin sons called Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau was technically born first, and so according to custom and tradition, law, he would have been considered the one who would continue that line of promised blessing. He was the firstborn. He would get that blessing and pass it on. And yet, God chose Jacob to continue the line of blessing rather than through Esau. So before either of them were born, before either of them had done anything, good or bad, God set his electing love upon Jacob and hated Esau. And those two brothers struggled in a rivalry that would escalate over the course of their lives. Jacob, of course, would go on to have his name changed to Israel, and that nation of Israel now traces their lineage back to him. 
Esau would go on to be the father of a nation called Edom. And that's the nation that's mentioned here in this passage. So that struggle that existed between Jacob and Esau continues now through these two nations, these people groups, these states. And so that's why the prophet is mentioning Esau and then switching right to Edom. The Edomites are the people of Esau, those whom God has hated. And so when Israel was being taken captive uh, by Babylon, Edom was actually cheering Babylon on. They were, they were even helping. You can read more about this in the book of Obadiah. Edom was going to be judged for their pride and their violence, their judgment against Israel. And so God would lay waste to the country of Edom, as descendants of Esau, and leave whatever inheritance they would have had as a desolate desert, uh, the sort of place that only a jackal would feel at home. And there would be no promised restoration for them. And if they tried to rebuild, God would not allow it. They would be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now, some of this language of judgment, if you read through other prophets in the Old Testament, sounds very similar to what was prophesied about Israel, the judgment that would come against Israel for their spiritual idolatry and adultery. But because of God's great love, God would not forsake his people Israel. He would restore them. He would allow them to return. There would one day be a day of restoration for Israel, and that is not true of Edom. So if you're tracking along, Israel has asked, how have you loved us? Just reading the text, it says, God responds by saying, you're going to understand my love for you better when you see the justice that you deserve falling upon Edom. Israel, you will know my love because you're not going to receive justice, you're going to receive mercy. And when you see that, you will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God loved Jacob and hated Esau. That's uncomfortable. We sometimes bring an assumption to God and his word, an assumption that he is obligated to extend his saving love to everyone indiscriminately in the exact same way. But this passage couldn't be more explicit in clarifying that that assumption is not accurate. You probably would be asking the objective question, well, doesn't God love everyone? Well, yes, of course, there is a sense in which God absolutely providentially loves everyone and everything that he has made. Even though Esau and Edom, his people, were not the objects of God's electing love, he still provided for them. He still cared for them. They had children, they had possessions, they had livestock. The same rain that fell on Israel that brought life to the earth for their crops is the same rain that fell on Edom and brought life to their crops. So there's definitely a sense in which God loves them and provides for them. But it's very clear here that there is a distinct, different sense in which his love is uniquely set upon Israel and withheld from Esau and Edom. The Apostle Paul picks up on this passage in the New Testament in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. We walked through that passage 
last year. It's on our podcast feed. It's on our website. We walk through this concept in more depth and more detail then, if you'd like to go back and listen to it. Paul uses this phrase, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. He uses it in Romans 9 to illustrate the fact that God has the freedom to set his powerful, steadfast, electing love upon whomever he sees fit. Sinful humanity is not entitled to grace. If you think that we are, you've misunderstood the very nature of grace. If grace isn't grace alone, it's not grace at all. And so God's merciful, steadfast love must be understood to be undeserved in any way. This is the humbling reality that God lays before his people, Israel. You know, last year, one of my kids had a Valentine's celebration uh, at, at school. And the way that Valentine celebrations have to work now is you need to bring a Valentine for everyone in the class. And you have to put a name on it for, for each of them. If you're going to give out candy, there needs to be enough for everyone within the room. So whether or not you've spoken to these other classmates, whether or not you know anything about them, you have to give the same candy, the same Valentine to everyone in the class, which really, friends, defeats the purpose of a Valentine. That's not what a Valentine even is. It's meant to be a specific personal note, which is addressed to a specific personal person that appreciates particular things about them. So if you take away the kid's freedom to express their love to particular people, well, now you've actually just completely evacuated any meaning from any of the Valentines. There's nothing unique. There's nothing distinct. There's nothing personal. There's nothing meaningful about it. It's a general and personal love for all, but really no one in particular. And as a consequence, it is a personal, special love for no one. Oh, friends, God's love will not be constrained to a Valentine's box. He is free to have mercy on whom he has mercy and to have compassion on whom he will have compassion. If you think that makes God unjust, I me just invite you to go back and read Romans 9. Uh, there, just like the prophet Malachi, Paul anticipates those potential objections and then he provides responses from God himself. We must let God be God. There's comfort, security, and humility in this. So the prophet tells Israel that they would better understand God's love, unique love for them, when they observed the justice that they deserved falling on someone else. They didn't deserve his love any more than Edom did. They didn't meet any conjection or, uh, conditions to be objects of God's grace, but they've received mercy nonetheless. And that special love should make them feel what is objectively true, that they are his special possession, even if it didn't look like it in any particular moment. The justice Edom would receive would stand as a necessary contrast to the mercy that Israel would receive. So how do we understand this in, in light of Jesus? Well, when we are tempted to question God's love for us, we should be careful to observe all that he has saved us from, as we've discussed already. We can, we can look at his righteous justice being expressed, and we can understand what we have been spared. And we recall that God shows his love for us as Christians 
in that while we were still sinners, which is to say deserving justice, Christ died for us. That he took the justice that we deserve. And we understand now what we've been saved from on this side of the cross. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the wages of sin, which is death. Not just us even individually, but even corporately as God's people, as the church. Just consider how God has preserved and set his powerful love upon his church how his church has prospered in spite of, and indeed even sometimes through, difficult circumstances. Remember the covenant, faithful, steadfast love of God for you and for his people as a whole. Uh, If you need a reminder of ways that God is at work in other churches around the valley, let me invite you to go to this conference that's going to be happening in September 29th and 30th at Church on Mill. Uh, This is part of the Grove Conference, one of our annual conferences where we're just getting together with members from other churches, around 10 of them from around the valley, just to, we're going to walk through the book of Philippians a little bit together. Other pastors from other local churches getting together to be encouraged by the fact that God is preserving his people, not just here at Trinity, but in other places as well, including Church on Mill. And Chuck is here right now. Raise your hand, Chuck. He's a pastor at Church on Mill, and he'll be there, one of the people speaking through the book of Philippians there. God is at work, and if you've forgotten, stick your head out into some other churches. Sign up for that conference. I'd love to see you there for it this fall. So if you're troubled by this concept of election, you fear the devastating destruction that awaits Edom, and you think, maybe, maybe that's me, just call on his name. Friends, you genuinely do not need to find out whether or not you are elect. That is hidden knowledge that belongs to God. Here's what we're responsible for. Repent and believe. Repent and believe right now. Just trust in his love. Trust that the wrath that you deserve has already fallen on Christ. Not on Edom, but on Christ. Call upon his name and you'll be saved. If you want to talk more about this in the lobby after the service, I'll be glad to do that. I'll be out there. This message to a bitter and despondent people might well apply to any of us here this morning. Here's what it says. Here's what it means. God has loved you, Christian. How has God loved you, you might ask? By sending his own son to take the wrath that you deserved. So hold fast to God's promises. Remember that the steadfast love of God endures forever. We need only look back at the cross to recognize that, that we have been delivered and there is a greater deliverance that is to come. Let that blessed assurance control your patience and your obedience today while we await the return of the Son of Righteousness who will come again with healing in his wings. Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray.